0: Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 13 this morning, if you would. We'll be there in our study this morning. We are working our way through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings. In our study, the book of Revelation, we are looking primarily at a time period in the world history uh, we call the Great Tribulation. That name really comes from Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus was talking with his disciples about the events that would transpire before the consummation of the age or before his second advent, before his return. Uh, The Apostle John here is receiving information via the Lord uh, through an angel where he has these visions and uh, he sees these events both in the past and in the future. Coming into view today is... An individual that you and I would call the Antichrist, the man of perdition. This figure was not necessarily something that was just spoken of in the New Testament. In ancient Hebrew literature, its apocalyptic writings, this man of woe, this man of perdition really was spoken of on a regular uh, basis, Antichrist. Or someone who opposes God, really, in the Bible, it isn't necessarily one person. In the book of Revelation, it's referring to one person. But really, there have been many antichrists, and there will be more antichrists as Jesus again speaks about in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And today, we are looking at a, a man, an individual, um, who will be supernaturally um, possessed uh, by the adversary of God. Of the devil, Satan himself. And the Bible indicates that there is an amount of wisdom or foresight that you and I should have in preparation for this individual's advent into the world. Um, the very end of our text this morning calls for contemplation in that regard. And so we will try to have an appropriate amount of information today about this biblical individual, this biblical character, and that we may prepare our hearts. Um, in the advent that the events that are begin to usher in here would, you know, have their birth pangs in our generation. So let me ask you to stand, if you would, in Revelation chapter 13. We're going to do a little bit of Bible reading today. Today is kind of an informational text. We'll be looking somewhat extensively in the book of Daniel uh, as we go through. Then we're going to make application at the end, and it's where really the application that's very obvious and evident that the Scripture itself presents to us in verse number 10. Revelation chapter 13, verse number 1 says this, speaking of John, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, this is a character we've been introduced already, this is Satan, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And the power was given unto him to continue forty and two months it's three and a half years. This is the latter half of the tribulation. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle in them that dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written, in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. And he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. And here is the patience and the faith of the saints." Father, I pray the next few moments as we look into Your Word that, Lord, You might help us through the illumination of the Holy Spirit to understand, uh, Lord, the intent of this text and, and Lord, to take away from it this uh, understanding, Lord, of Your sovereignty, uh, Lord, of our spiritual protection, and, and, Lord, an understanding of what manner of men we ought to be as a result of knowing this future is to befall the world. And so I I ask that we might respond in a way that would please you. Ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. As we have been discussing, the final chapters, or I should say the final chapter of Earth's history will be a chaotic, violent and a time that is full of deception and deceit. And the days leading up to the tribulation, or this final seven years of Jewish time yet to be fulfilled before Christ returns, we refer to the Bible as the last days. And it would be fair to say of ourselves that we live in the last days. And the Bible tells us that this, know that in the last days, the time that we live, just preceding the tribulation, that perilous times will come, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And we would certainly understand that. We could see that. We would agree with that, that we are living in the midst of perilous times. In a fallen world, I suppose you could argue that all of time has been perilous, but we see a rapt, a rapid shift. And in, in the philosophy of this world, in the, in the time and the age in which we live, uh, a movement away from historic foundations of family and faith into a time where you know, the, the supernatural is glorified, where the multiplicity of religions is, re- is, is really embraced, and, and, and evil in and all its various forms are manifest in our world. Well, these days are referred to in Matthew 24 as the beginning of sorrows. It's, it's a time when we see the world beginning to pitch towards its final end. It'll be a time of wars, of pestilence, of famine and earthquake. Things that we are not unfamiliar with. Now, these last days, these perilous days, will dovetail into a grand event that is described for us in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, and we refer to that grand event as the rapture of the church. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, after His resurrection, really has 2 reentries, if you will, uh, into this planet. The first will be this rapture of the church where a uh, trump of the archangel will sound and we will all be caught up together in the air with Him. And this will be the departing of the church to meet the Lord in the air. And that will be uh, His second, uh, or I should say the parousia, that second coming. But then there's a second advent. And this event occurs at the last of the tribulation. This is when the, the nations of the world are gathered together in the valley of Armageddon. And this is last, Satan's last-ditch attempt to thwart the plans of God. And Jesus Christ will then come in great glory in the sky. And here's the coolest part, we come with Him. And then we have the consummation of the age and the millennial kingdom. But perilous days are days that we are familiar with. And as time progresses as we can imagine, moving closer towards the rapture of the church, and really the introduction of the beast from the sea that we'll see here in a few moments. During this time, the world will experience greater degrees of instability. And then, of course, as we broach into the time of the tribulation, we'll see ensuing judgments for God, uh, from God, and of course, Satan battling back. And it will be a, a horrific time in these last seven years. Now, if you just can imagine during these perilous times that grow ever darker and then dovetail into the tribulation, humanity, humankind will be looking for a savior, a savior. They'll be looking for a leader, someone who can solve all the world's problems, all the world's dilemmas that seem to be spiraling out of control. They'll be looking for someone to have policies and and schemes, if you will, to save the world from chaos. They'll be looking for someone, and I use this language specifically, not just for a Savior, but for someone to deliver them. For the idea of the Antichrist is really the false persona of everything that Christ is. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Jesus Christ is the deliverer, but Satan in these perilous days, maybe uh, post-rapture, maybe right after, will assert himself in these horrible times when humanity is looking for solutions, and he will portend himself to be the world's savior. From these perilous times, they are facing the world's environment, uh, politically, uh, socially, Spiritually, even naturally, we'll be looking for someone, and this seedbed of chaos will be the perfect place for the Antichrist to arise. And the text says that this, this creature will arise from the sand. It's probably a metaphor for the host of humanity and all of its nations. And he's going to arise from the sea. And I understand we're looking at an ocean scene, but the, the idea here spiritually is. There's one rising out of the mass of humanity from the abyss, which the word sea here is the same word there in the Greek from, from abyss, that one will arise from the chaos humanity from the abyss to present himself a savior. And from the sand of the sea will arise, the text says, a beast, an authoritative, charismatic, strong, an incredibly intelligent ruler that will seem capable of bringing the world back from the brink of disaster. As we've already learned, the beast, we've already seen his character in the pages of the book of Revelation. This is a satanically possessed superhuman who will reign as a worldwide monarch during the days of the tribulation. In the midst of the tribulation, and after three and a half years of a treaty that this man makes with the nations of the world and with Israel, he will do something that is called the abomination of desolation. He will sort of break this treaty. He will go to the then rebuilt temple of God. He will declare himself to be God, and he will assert a, a, an incredible reign of terror, really unlike anything uh, history has to compare so far. And we've seen him already in the Revelation uh, having a war in heaven. We've seen two wars, the original war in the days of Garden of Eden and then a second war just preceding this chapter where Satan is cast out as lightning from heaven and he knows now his days are short and the end is coming and he is going to try his very best to thwart the purpose of God. And, And this is the timetable we're looking at in our text this morning. Here in chapter 13, we see his ascendancy during the dark hour of the tribulation, and we learn of his identity from this text. In these opening verses, we read a description that's not new or novel from the pages of the Bible. We see a creature here called the beast whose identity is traced and identified with a very unique description. Here's an individual with descriptively seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns, and the name, or names, of blasphemy upon them, indicating a declaration of hate, contempt uh, for God and His creation. We've already discussed in our study the seven heads most likely stand for seven kingdoms uh, throughout the course of really Israel's time of uh, prominence. It would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, in Rome, and then of course we'll, just, we'll discover the revived, what some call the revived Roman Empire, uh, another empire that will reign that the Antichrist will rule. Ten horns, ten crowns are reference to the nations, the rulers, and kings. It, it, the, the word number ten sort of means complete or total. It could be ten nations here that he will rule. Some have called this the European Confederacy. I don't know. I tend to believe it. This is a reference to. This ruler that it will be in the long lineage of cruel rulers starting back in Egypt and now this final Antichrist will rule the nations of kings before him. And uh, he will be the first true world monarch and ruler, cruel one that the, the world has ever known. The text is presenting to us to a worldly king of kings a leader, a ruler that has great um, evil, ignobility about him. And and I want us to, to trace his origins and roots as described here in our text back to Daniel chapter 7. So we're going to read quite a few verses here this morning. So take your Bibles if you would and turn to Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to begin to read here a vision of Daniel. Now, Daniel received a very unique set of visions from God about the apocalypse, the end of the age. Um, He didn't understand all these things where we get the 70 weeks and the final week, the the 70th week that's yet to be completed, the tribulation. And, And bear with me, okay, a little bit of reading, but I want us to see the identity of this individual his ancient roots. So, Daniel here has asked God about the end times and what will that be like. Verse 1 of chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came from the sea diverse from one another. Now he's about to describe four great kingdoms that would be present in his time forward. Um, but this, these creatures, the same one mentioned in Revelation 13. And the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld that the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet of a man and a man's heart was given to it. And behold another beast, a second like a bear and raised itself on one side and had three ribs in his mouth and between the teeth of it, And they said, Thus unto it, Arise and devour much flesh. And after this, I beheld another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given it. And so what we really see here is the leopard being Greece, the bear being Persia, and the lion. Being Babylon, and these these ancient people would have immediately noted that these were the symbols of those nations. So, what he's saying is, is these kind of these antagonistic nations to Israel, kinds of these antichrists, these governments that have oppressed them. But now, all of a sudden, Daniel sees something new and extraordinary. Verse seven. And after this, I saw the night visions. Behold, a fourth beast. Now, straining for words dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. Or this government, this beast, this ruler destroyed everything that was before it. This is speaking of Rome. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, another ruler, a ruler that would be likened unto the emperors of Rome. The little horn here is the reference to the Antichrist in Revelation 13. Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now verse 9 then begins to go into, it it, it projects very quickly into the future, and this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming and destroying this beast, this creature. Let me just read the first verse, verse 9. And I I beheld till the thrones were cast down, the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garments were white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels of burning fire." And a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. So, this is where the Lord Jesus Christ conquers the Antichrist, the end times. And so, Daniel's kind of going back and forth. In verse 15, he goes back to this image of the beast and gives further description. And I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And I came near to one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. So, he told me and made me to know the interpretations of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And so he's basically saying, I know this is troubling, but um, God's going to win, is what he's saying. But Daniel wasn't content to let it go. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head and of the others which came up and before whom three fell, even that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. So, Daniel's troubled because he sees something different in this last kingdom, this this last ruler. And and, in his vision, he sees him overcoming God's people, destroying and persecuting them. And and this this creature is horrible and terrible. And this is plaguing Daniel. And I beheld the same horn make war with the saints, prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And so again, this is kind of a back and forth picture. But Daniel's seeing this fourth, this fourth kingdom, this fourth ruler, and he's troubled by it. And twice the angel says, "But God will win, and God will win." But he's still plagued by this. In chapter seven, verse ten, here we see the same reference that we see in Revelation 13, verse eight. We see this horn that is mightier and more ferocious than the others—Babylon, Persian, Greece. Um, we see that he has a an empire. He's a person that has eyes of a man and the mouth speaking blasphemies, and he will rule until Christ comes back. In verse nine, and we see further revelation the cry of this antichrist again in fifteen through 20, twenty-two. Really, twenty-two. We, we, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in verse twenty-three. The antichrist will have a kingdom. In um, verse twenty-five, he will wear out God's people. As a matter of fact, look in verse twenty-three. This is fascinating. Um, what the Antichrist does. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. And he shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of his kingdom are ten kings that shall rise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first and shall subdue do three kings. And, and he speaks these great blasphemies, but look down here, it says, and he will think to change times and laws. In other words, I'm not fully sure what all that means, but he's probably going to rewrite history to suit his purposes. He's going to make laws that really serve his purposes. And if you turn over to chapter 8, and I know this is lengthy, but the Bible gives some great length of commentary to this individual. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, look there with me if you would. And so Daniel receives further information about this individual. In the latter time of their kingdoms, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding and dark sentence shall stand up. This is the beast out of the sea. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. It's the same thing Revelation 13 is saying. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many and he shall also stand up against the prince of princes but he shall be broken without a hand the lord what the bible saying here is this antichrist is going to grow so powerful during his time of rule that he's going to believe the same deceptive lies that satan has taught himself that as is in isaiah 14 he can ascend to the very throne here's a man inspired by satan possessed by the devil that has conquered the world is making war against God's people and now believes once again that he can do this third war against God in heaven and somehow win. He's described as fierce and dark. He will execute his judgment. He will have supernatural satanic power. Uh, He will have human giftedness, but much more than that. He will be unchallenged. He will excel. He will prosper and he will destroy. And that he will demand to be worshipped. That's part of what the abomination of desolation speaks of, that this ruler like others before him won't be content with just having power but like the emperor worship we discovered in first peter he will demand to be worshiped remember satan is the father of lies he is the antichrist he seeks what is god's and the antichrist here the satanic evil is an imitator of god in every way and he wants god's worship and this individual of course empowered by the antichrist he will be so deceived himself that he will believe that he can fight the forces of Heaven and still win. Now take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 9, and again a lot, but hang here with me. But I want us to consider the progression. And we're going to skip to verse 25. And and let me give you some uh, Advanced explanation: We've already covered this text once. Twenty-five through twenty-seven is kind of like this broad vision of you know the beginning of Satan's uh, war with heaven, all the way to his final demise. About Jesus Christ coming. Let, let's read it and we'll, we'll make some commentary through this. But verse twenty-five in Daniel nine says, "Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, Jesus, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks." And the street shall be built again, and the wall even in trouble's times. And then after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. This is, these are references to the timetable between Daniel lived and when the Messiah would come. And then in the midst of Messiah's return that he would be cut off, or he would be killed. This is when Jesus was hung on the cross. But not for himself, but for the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city of the sanctuary. And so this is a very fast, then moving on, when Titus destroyed Jerusalem in seventy AD. And the end. Uh, thereof shall be with the flood, and to the end of the war make desolation determined. Verse 27 speaks of the Antichrist. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for a week, seven years. That's a Jewish idiom for seven years. And In the midst of the week shall he cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease, whereas he'll make God's worship end in, in the world. And for the overspreading of ab- abominations, he shall make it desolate He'll declare Himself God is the idea here, no more worshiping God, just worship Me, even until the consummation, the end of the world, and a determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So, verse 25 through 27, very quickly we see the arrival of Jesus, the destruction of Jerusalem, the Antichrist ascendancy, and then His destruction again. Daniel chapter 11, and we're almost done with this reading and we'll, we'll begin to talk. In then chapter 11, we see yet another description of the Antichrist, beginning in verse number 36, verse 36. And the Bible says that the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that is determined shall be done." Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, this is Satan, and a God whom his fathers knew not, shall he honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain." And at that time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with the chariots and the horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into countries that shall overflow and pass by. We're not here yet, but here's the, the description during the Antichrist rule that the Lord orchestrating the events of the world to bring them all together to the Valley of Armageddon for the final destruction and, and, and Satan's final end. In verse 36, we see that he magnifies himself even above God, he blasphemes. Verse thirty-seven, he serves Satan. In thirty-eight, um, he will engage the world in satanic worship. In verse forty, uh, really to the end of the chapter, describes the events that lead to the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll come back to at another time. These are the same thoughts in Matthew twenty-four, verses fifteen and sixteen, and really describe for us in Second Thessalonians chapter two about the man of perdition who will arise. if we don't have time to go there today. Verse three. I'm honestly going to get back to Revelation now, and I'll move quickly. So turn back to Book Revelation. I wanted you to have those texts as references because all those really alluded to um, in this first verse, two verses of Revelation 13. I want you to have that backdrop for who this person is. But very quickly, in verse number three of Revelation chapter three, of 12, verse three, we see an event that happens that most commentators simply believe this. This cult leader, Antichrist, rules in a time of chaos. And something that really helps him hold power is evidently describes him as being mortally wounded. He receives a wound in his head that looks like death. Whether he actually dies or not, I don't know. But the Bible says that he has this kind of feigned resurrection, again an imitation of Jesus Christ. And in this feigned resurrection, um, whether he actually comes back from the dead or not, um, the world will wonder and worship him. They will wonder that this, this creature has such of the worldly power. In verse 4 of chapter 12, 13, again we see an imitation of his demand for worship. Um, he demands praise, and the world will, will really, it's again, uh, if we remember the early chapters of the book of Revelation, heaven broke out into chorus and worshiping God. Here the world breaks out in chorus and worships the devil, worships his antichrist. Who is likened to him in verse 4? Who can make war with him? words, they're praising him the way that heaven praises God. In verse 5, it delineates a timetable for his absolute rule, three and a half years, it'll be a time of blasphemies. Verse 6, he will blaspheme God and his home in heaven, and you and I who will be there with him. It's an incredible rage and delusion that we have going on here. Verse 7, it was given to him, which is phrase that really indicates that all of this is still in God's control. This is the perspective of heaven that heaven grants this Antichrist this time, that he'll only have the, the power that God allows him to have to exercise, but he will have power to take and steal and kill and destroy. And this is important in beginning to make to our application that he will have the power to overcome, now listen, physically God's people. With all his power and might, I would say to you. And I've I've spent some time trying to communicate how worldly, great, and terrible the Antichrist will be, that he will not have the power to steal men's souls or to keep us from heaven. If I had time, I would reference you to Romans chapter 8 and remind you that in the darkest of hours, that you and I are still kept by the power of God and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Without qualification, our, lay, our lives are safe in Christ, in God, and that cannot be undone. Now, this text concludes with a warning of sobriety. Now, this is a familiar refrain to us, and it goes like this I've just said something to you that's important. Why all this is important? may not be immediately understandable by us today. A generation will arise where all that information will be really helpful and insightful. But he says, if any man have an ear, then let him hear. And then he gives this principle, it's a proverb. And it's it's phrased here in, in a unique way. Um, let's just, let's look at it. I, I, I want you to to see what's said here. In verse 10, it says, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity, and he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. And here's the patience and the faith of the saints. Okay, now to everybody just to settle from all that reading and look up here. Let me make a few minutes of application because I think this is important. The principle could go like this The inevitable cannot be escaped. Okay. Now, there's a lot of things in life that are inevitable. The sun's going to come up, the sun's going to go down. You with me? Some things in a fallen world are in, in, inevitable. No matter how much you try to protect and isolate yourself, you're probably going to experience some hurt and trouble. You, you with me? Okay. I used to think and believe that if I lived as righteously as I could, you know, I might escape a world of hurt. And I think I probably have. But then I'm reminded Jesus lived perfectly and he experienced hurt. He was accused, falsely accused. He was mistrusted. He was hated by some. There are things in life, some things in life are inevitable. You, you, you're not going to change them. You're not going to alter them. Doesn't mean we can, we can stop a lot of things. Maybe what happened to us. But life in a fallen world has inevitable hardships and hurt. The inevitable cannot be escaped. And in, in this, this is, in, in our world, this is, it's hard time to relate to this. We can't escape some things, but by the grace of God, we can survive all things. You're with me? We can survive it. We can be Hopernike last week, overcomers. We can overcome evil, we can overcome wickedness, but we may have to still forfeit our lives. In other words, we win by dying in faith. In other words, not to be a cliche, the things that hurt us, they do not have to destroy us, even from someone with such power. The eventuality reality of the rise of a worldwide culture that hates Christians and God is inevitable. Now, I'd say this to my kids, when my grandkids are old enough, you and I have lived in a time of if not support, indifference in our world. Um, We may have been teased and taunted for being Christians, but no one's really suffered badly yet. Look up here. That's going to change. It is changing. We're in a culture that embraces tolerance for anything except us. In the absolute nature of our faith, the exclusionary nature of our faith. We, we, we believe there's just one God in heaven, not multiple. We, we don't believe that sincerity is enough to take you to heaven, but that comes by grace through faith in Christ. That message will become more and more and more and more abhorrent to the world. It's not like one day the Antichrist says, We hate all Christians, or we hate all God's people. There's going to be a progression to this, it's inevitable. And apart from the grace of God in our hearts, there is no love for God in this world contemporarily. Right. And a wickedness and an evil is rising that when God allows to be fully unrestrained, 2 Thessalonians, the evil will probably defy our current understanding. The depth of human depravity is a really dark thing, but a satanically inspired depravity is unfathomable but it will be unleashed on this world. Well, the text we are studying today can simply be read as a biography of a coming evil ruler, and it's fascinating. Its greater intention is to make an audience ready to persevere through the the early days for us as the church, of these days of the beginning of sorrows, the birth pains, the perilous times. It is to make a people ready to serve God in times of great provocation against the people of God. The world is unleashing um, an intolerance for us. And today it's hard for us to, to quite prepare. We may choose to be indifferent, to distance ourselves from this coming manifestation of evil, but a day is going to come where you're going to be forced to be loyal to one of two kingdoms. And we've talked about that. Perhaps you and I are resting in the truth that the rapture will take us away before all these things come. And it will take us before many things come. But it doesn't mean the day between now and that event won't turn really dark and ugly. I'm going to suggest to you that that dark evil is already present. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. And I believe it's like a growing cloud, it is getting darker and stronger. In view of the text is a demonically-possessed superhuman called the Antichrist. But history has been filled with Antichrists who have hated God in His way. I tried, I, yes I tried, I'm trying to identify with this text. I'm trying to identify with this warning, he who had ears to hear, let him hear. Be prepared for the eventuality of hardship and then be ready to survive it in faith, be willing to endure it in Christ, be willing to go through it in the right spirit, endure the hardship the way God calls grace-filled people to do it. You know what he's saying here? That there's a day coming when they're gonna take you to prison and there's a day coming when they're gonna kill you with the sword and there's a day coming when they're gonna take you away And just as in 1 Peter, we're being given instruction on how to endure that hardship. And it's not fight back. It's not to to, uh, fight evil with evil. But it's to commit ourselves the way Jesus Christ did to his God while he was on on the cross. He reviled not. This is a call to being a Christian's witness and being faithful to him in the darkest of hours. I tried to wrap my brain around this. So for two hours yesterday, I I engaged in in an exercise. I read stories and quotes in the writings of dozens of people who experienced in first person the horrors of the Holocaust. Does that make sense why I would do that? How how did people go through what we have seen as a world probably the, the depths of human depravity? I read the stories of enslaved camps, of the torture done by the Nazis. In in terms of human precedent, it was the greatest institutionalized evil the world has probably ever seen. It was the nearest example I could relate to. The stories and testimonies were mind numbing. Mind numbing. They were heart-wrenching. They were sobering. They were emotional. They were viscerally, viscerally disturbing. It's amazing what humans can do to humans. And then humans inspired and possessed by devils, you know, it's unimaginable. I was looking for the ways that people en- endured that, that they managed and coped. And the sad reality is lots didn't, at least not emotionally whole and intact. Many who survived it physically still felt casual as casualties mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I suppose in the same way that soldiers might come home from the horrors of a war. I found some writings though that I think articulate the principle. That God is getting to in verse 10 for us. These are things that guided their thinking as they went through this. Many of these were written by Viktor Frankl. I think most of you would know. Uh, he wrote an essay it's entitled The Man's Search for Meaning. The words he wrote are reflective, and I think in some way representative of what God has communicated this principle that there's some things in life you can't stop from happening, but how you navigate them is in your control. I'm sorry for the time, I just need you to listen. The mental reactions of the inmates of the concentration camp must seem more to us than mere expressions of certain physical and sociological conditions, even though conditions such as a lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses, tortures, may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways, Whereas people who go through this, you'd expect them to be totally messed up. In the final analysis becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was a result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such indescribable circumstances, decide what shall become of him mentally and spiritually. He may retain his human dignity even in a concentration camp see, there's one thing that I dread, and that was not to be worthy of my suffering. I I, I, I don't know how to communicate that to you to become meaningful. Here is a man going through experimentation, torture, the horrors of carrying dead bodies. You know the story, you can read it. And he's saying that, that's, that that alone doesn't have to define me, that I can still choose to be human. Well, for us, I can still serve God in a noble way. The book of 4, 1 Peter chapter 4 labors this point we're not, to suffer, we're not to suffer as evildoers. We're to suffer in a worthy way. Here's a man who wanted his suffering still to give glory to God. Okay. That's what he's asking from us in verse 10. You may be led away. You may experience famine. You may be killed. That's for the most part somewhat inevitable. But the perseverance of the saints is this. Endure it in a way that you don't dishonor the suffering. We are so far from that. We are so far from that. And, it, it, and I'm not even sure it's all our fault. We just can't relate to it. I shook with helplessness and rage, but also with fear. This, this was what fighting back earned you more abuse, more death, Half a dozen Jews would be murdered today because one man refused to die without a fight. To fight back was to die quickly, but it was to take others with you. This is why prisoners went meekly to their deaths. I had been so resolved to fight back, but but after that I knew I wouldn't. To suffer quietly hurt only you. To suffer loudly and violently and angrily to fight back was to bring hurt and pain and death to others. See again, there's a, there's a parallel there. This man began to understand that the way he went to his death impacted other people. And the way that you and I go through suffering is a witness for Christ. When you and I go through hardship and we complain and we bicker and we fight, when, we, when you and I just in our indescribably low pettiness, lose our testimony for such small things, you know there's collateral damage. We hurt the cause of Christ. In other words, there's a way that we're supposed to nobly go through sufferings. We can't even go through blessings in this right attitude with the perseverance and faith of of the saints. We fight and chafe today. God calls you and I to go through hard times with patience and long-suffering. Not only do we possess the theological reality that our souls cannot be stolen, but with the help and grace of God, we are not to forfeit grace. We are not to forfeit peace. We are not to forfeit strength. We are not to ever forfeit inner victory. We are never to forfeit our testimony. We are not to forfeit our witness for Christ. We are not to fight back with those who fight us, for that would be to create casualty. Today, our minds and eyes and hearts are affected by a myriad of a 1,000 distractions. But what if all those were taken away, and all we were left with was suffering? How would you and I fare? Wouldn't you and I do ourselves and our testimonies a favor by focusing our hearts on God today? In other words, we need to work on not being moved in the times of blessing so we wouldn't be moved in times of difficulty. How is it you and I can allow such petty infringements upon our desires and interests and pursuits make us so miserable, unhappy, and complain? We cry foul, unfair, and a thousand things right now and you've not been through a holocaust. And no one's been through the tribulation, but it's coming. See, there's a there's, there's the bleed here to a second principle. Look in verse 10. He that leads into captivity, it's a you he's going to go to captivity. He that killeth with a sword, he's going to die. God's allowing this to happen. But here's the perseverance. Here's, here's the pace of the saints. You've got, you have to go through that in faith. Do you know what hard times do to some people? It makes them hard. For a lot of people, when things get bad, guess what else goes bad? They're hard. Auschwitz existed within history, not outside of it. And the main lesson I learned there was simple. We Jews should never, ever become like our tormentors. You want to know why we need to be prepared to go through suffering in the right spirit? Because our tendency is to become like our tormentors. We tend to become like the evil around us. See, I don't get it. Okay, just think back to the last fight you had with your spouse. You with me? And it's just a circle. Mean begets mean. Unkindness begets unkindness. Harsh words beget harsh words. It's the whole point of Peter once again. When times get really hard, if we're not careful, we're going to fight back in the wrong way. It's probably inevitable you're gonna be killed. You'll be taken to prison. And see, everything in our Western thinking says, fight that, fight that, fight that. But you and I are to go through persecution the same way Jesus Christ went to the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said, I don't like that. Well, that's Christianity. Because we fight and chafe against everything in the Western world. We have rights, we have privileges. That's why we can't even simply defer to one another in church. I'm not being stupid too much, but that's why you can't give up your seat for somebody else. Like we, we, we are so, we are so removed from this, but I'm not sure um, we're gonna fully escape that. People my age may, may get by but perilous times are coming. And if we can't navigate these times, well, God help us in perilous times. And if we can't eliminate the fussing and fighting we have with each other, and the unfairnesses and injustices of life, we can't handle that. If we cry about everything today, how can we possibly go through any kind of difficulty with the spirit that Jesus Christ expects? Is this not a challenge Could we do this? Could we try to go through the coming week without whining? I and mean, we're really dumbing this way down. Give the opportunity, could you defer? When someone's mean to you, could you be kind? When someone infringes upon your right, could you deal with that? When the inevitable happens, will you choose how to respond or will you just follow in suit and kind? Can we actually give real effort to try to grow in the grace of Christ? Gotta stop, let me ask you to stand.